This podcast is brought to you by Highland. Highland offers solutions that complement your core insurance business, providing employees with a complete view of the information they need when and where they need it. Helping you deliver better experiences is at the heart of everything they do. Learn more at highland.com forward slash insurance. That's highland, H-Y-L-A-N-D dot com forward slash insurance. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 74 of InsureTech Insider, still recording remotely. Uh, We do still want your suggestions as to who we should get on the show um, and we want to hear about as wide a range of guests as possible. So do get in touch by emailing podcast11fs.com with your suggestions of people we should have along. So today we're going to be talking about digital transformation in the insurance industry um, and especially in the midst of this current pandemic. Uh, we're going to talk about internal policies, uh, potential automation of those, as well as um, actual insurance policies. You know, how are they underwritten and how are claims processed uh, digitally? I am, as always, not alone. And today I'm joined by Nigel Walsh. How are you doing, Nigel? I'm very well, apart from it being September and it's starting to get a bit chilly, but I'm OK. Thank you very much. Yes, we are British. We do have to start with a discussion about the weather. Um, I can confirm that it's blinking freezing here and I've got a portable heater by my feet because I am so British. I refuse to turn my heating on till October. It's, it's, I think it's a national thing, but what can I say? I've actually put trousers on for the first time in about four months. I mean, I had to be wearing shorts just for clarity, but uh, yes, I've now got full length trousers. I'm a grown up. Thank you for providing that clarity, Nigel. Um, and joining us are two awesome guests. First up, we have Anastasia Dokochaeva, Head of Partnerships at Clause Match. How are you doing today, Anastasia? Hi, Sarah. You pronounced it so nicely. Thank you for this. I'm doing well, and I'm actually incredibly excited because my kids are going back to school tomorrow. Wow, you can actually have your life back. Exactly. In five months I'm done and this topic is very relevant for me today. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, I can imagine. Um, Sku, can we start? Can you just tell us a little bit about ClauseMatch and what it does? Sure. Uh, ClauseMatch is a London-based regulatory technology company and uh, our clients are people that work in compliance, in finance, in legal and in risk and ClauseMatch helps them to collaborate on documents faster, digitally um, and efficiently uh, while solving multiple workflow problems. And now with COVID, actually, uh, this became an incredibly important area of focus for us. Brilliant. Well, thank you for coming along. You may be the first reg tech we've had on this show. Um, I'd have to go back and check, but uh, you're, you're certainly fairly fairly unique. Um, and we're also joined by Tim Hood, Associate Vice President, EMEA at Highland. How are you today, Tim? I'm very well, Sarah, and it's nice to meet you remotely. I'd also like to congratulate you on the outstanding pronunciation of my surname, although it's not as impressive as Anastasia's. And I agree 100% with your analysis of not turning the heating on until October, despite the fact it is cold, grey, wet and windy in Yorkshire, where I am today. (laughs) Yes, yes, I will wear three jumpers before I go near that thermostat. So I may have already mentioned Highland uh, in this particular podcast, but perhaps you could give us um, a little bit more insight into what Highland does. Absolutely. Uh, And yes, you did a great job, by the way. I I like I like the higher and overview that you go. Um, so fundamentally, we provide um, software solutions to help our customers on their digital transformation journeys. And the both the financial and the insurance sectors are very, very important to us. Um, fundamentally, we look to get the right information uh, into the right people at the right time to allow people to make informed business decisions. 
And as you mentioned, we're very focused on helping our customers deliver better experiences to their employees and also to their customers by providing a complete view of uh, information, documents, and data, both internally and externally. Um, we focus on process automation and driving uh, additional productivity, regardless of where and how people need to work, which, as you can imagine, at the moment, is particularly relevant given the challenges of COVID. And I'm delighted to say that through the first half of 2020, we actually showed um, strong year-on-year um, -year growth uh, across the entire business globally. Um, across the globe, we have over 3,500 employees, and I'm pleased to say that not only do our customers uh, like working with us, but also it is a, a good place to work, which has been evidenced by the, the reactions throughout these somewhat challenging times. Yes, you're ideally well positioned as an employer, I imagine, to um, have rolled out remote working relatively speedily. Yes, um, I'll be honest, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but we hadn't stress tested the entire organisation going remote um, across four different continents in a in a, in a seven-day period, but it, it seemed to work out okay so far. All right, well, yes, let's, let's pick that up in a bit. Um, but first, let's set the scene uh, by talking about what has happened uh, since COVID-19 hit in the middle of March um, earlier this year and, and what impact it might have had on digital transformation in the insurance industry. Nigel, would you like to, to give us some scene-setting uh, information, please? I'm all in. I, I think everyone's, we're probably all tired of this story by now in that we've, you know, the last couple of months, every single aspect of the insurance industry, in fact, every industry almost, has been forced to explore remote channels. But for some, that's not been fully possible. So when the COVID-19 outbreak closed the UK in March, it also closed the doors to the world famous and super well-known Lloyds of London trading floor. Now, for those that are watching the news over the last couple of days, you'll of course know it also reopened for the first time in September after it's closed. Previously, over 7,000 people per day would enter and use the four-storey trading rooms at Lloyds of London, visiting boxes and so much more. The result of being forced to do things in a completely new way. And over the last couple of months, we've seen article after article, story after story about how many of the players, the brokers, the underwriters, and all the folks uh, that make up the insurance organisations have embraced digital of some form or another to make sure the industry can continue. I guess that's a quick summary, Sarah. We no doubt jump into it a bit further now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's start by going back a bit. Um, and this is a topic we have explored before, but let's have a quick summary um, on kind of where we were sort of before March. So as an industry, where was the insurance industry in when it comes to digitalization? Um, and perhaps the easiest way to do that is to peg it against, uh, you know, I suppose similar or, or adjacent industries. Maybe that's financial services. Um, let's not go as far as trying to ask how digital insurance is as compared to Twitter. Um, but, you know, what, 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 what do people think? What are your perspectives on it? Because it can go, you know, some people say, oh, it was a long way behind banking. Some people say it's a long way further than wealth management, you know. Do, do either you, Tim or Anastasia, have any um, any particular perspectives on that? It certainly was behind. Uh, we, I work quite a lot with the financial services firms and, yes, driven by regulations uh, and the pressures of uh, the financial crisis have made them to revolutionize and digitize themselves and put those programs in place earlier. Um, so from that point on, do I see insurance uh, lagging behind? Yes, I do. Um, is it completely lacking behind? No, it's not. It's definitely also very aware 
of innovation, of possibilities that technology brings, and more importantly, possibilities are the automation, um, administrative uh, tasks that could be uh, eliminated. Uh, obviously, we also see that uh, insurance firms, insurance market uh, is definitely smaller organizations, more humble, fast-growing organizations that the fintechs see, but uh, that automation and that technology um, definitely is something that helps them to um, be profitable. Yeah, they get, they're getting there, basically, but they are a little bit behind. And that's interesting, some of your points there about maybe regulation has driven financial services faster. We'll come back and pick that up in a minute. But Tim, did you want to, to jump in there on the original question? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, Sarah, that we work cross industry. So whilst financial services and, and insurance are very important to us, we, we work pretty much across every industry, including government, higher education, commercial manufacturing. And I think it varies quite a lot by, by geography as well. In fact, in some areas, we've seen some of the insurance companies being, I would say, more progressive when it comes to digital transformation and some of the other areas of the businesses that we work with, particularly when it comes to things like moving to, to the cloud, where I'd expected uh, insurance companies to be somewhat recalcitrant. But in fact, several of our larger customers now have very much focused on that cloud infrastructure, and that's only been exacerbated by the, uh, the, the COVID-19 situation and the fact that people are looking at how to work more effectively without necessarily having to maintain the, the infrastructure and be in the office all the time. So whilst I definitely wouldn't say that the insurance sector is at the, at the bleeding edge of, of technology adoption, I would certainly say it's um, relatively well advanced and, and ahead of many, particularly when it comes to that, that cloud uptake, which we're, we're really seeing a strong trend to at the moment. Nigel. So I'm going to be controversial here. Bear in mind, I spent my life helping companies become more digitally advanced, whether it's digitalization or digitization. But if the question is, how digitally advanced is the industry? Is the answer advanced enough? And the reason I say that is we've been wallowing along or moving along slowly enough that meets customers' requirements. And the things that we do, whether it's Highland or Clause Match or any of the other technologies out there, help people become more efficient, more effective, take costs out. In fact, my having worked in software many years ago, my pet hate with all software companies is we reduce costs, drive revenue, improve service. Whether it's banking, financial services, wherever we are, we all do that sort of thing. But, the, but I guess my point is we were doing well enough. We can always do better. I think the same is true for banking, as Sarah will tell us as well. I think the COVID story has probably driven that a little bit further from the way we work but has it allowed us or has it started us to reimagine what we do as opposed to just to how we do it? Well, I think to the point about are you is the industry doing it well enough? I don't know who who you'd be talking to who thinks it might be <laughs> as, a, as a whole industry, because I don't know that. I mean, uh, there are many customers out there who still and now accept they have to purchase insurance choose to buy insurance rather than being sold it and given it. Um, and actually, you know, how many insurers have, have managed to cope with the current situation without being incredibly frustrated? I mean, just as some of the things perhaps, um, Tim and Anastasia, like what are some of the big issues? Because I don't think we, there has been enough done and you were both nodding. So it sounds like you're kind of on the same page. Where are the biggest issues? Tim, did you want to go first on that one? So I, I agree with Nigel's point that you know, looking at doing it bigger, better, faster, more automating reducing cost is key, but I think there's a slightly more fundamental question um, that, that needs to be answered, is given the way that over a, a, very, a relatively short period of time, the way that we need to work 
dramatically changed in ways that we couldn't have imagined. I don't. I think the question has been less of a can we do it more effectively and more efficiently, and more of are we able to run our business um, if we're forced to change very very quickly. And that was again with one of our, our, our large customers in Europe that we worked with this year. That was what actually moved the priority of their project up when they were working with Hyde. That it became less of a what's the business case analysis and more of a this has fundamentally changed the way we need to work. We have to be ready to change. I also think the other thing that we really need to bear in mind is that yes, technology can be an enabler, but we've got to also consider people because people have gone through a, a dramatic change as well. And just sometimes because we're able to digitize and transform, we also have to think, what does that mean for the employees and people interacting within their own organizations, but also with customers, which I think the Lloyds of London thing is a great case. Yes, potentially you could do more remotely because it's about talking, understanding and negotiating, but also if you don't have that relationship and that ability to interact with individuals well, it gets exponentially more difficult. I think that's a point as well that perhaps a lot of um, digitalization efforts have thus far been focused on the front end. You know, how do we enable customers to submit claims digitally? How do we get people to buy policies online? And actually what gets forgotten a lot of the time is so much of the back end stuff actually needs to be improved before you get to that front end stuff. Do the front end stuff first and as opposed to just sticking a plaster over it and go, here you go, you've got a, you've got a digital application form. And actually it's just the analog application form typed into a computer. Yeah, I have tons of stories and two stories <laughs> in particular come to mind just by listening to this conversation. But there's also, I think, a, a human element to it. So, uh, I, I mean, I can only speak for uh, the engagements and conversations I have with our clients and experience we're seeing. And that's uh, managing documents on the, in the back office environment, not even uh, working with clients specifically. But it's interesting to kind of before COVID um, look at people just wanting to naturally work in more modern tools, something more cool and advanced and not as boring. And, you know, the documents used to be a very boring thing of, of a process. Uh, but with COVID, uh, that has actually shifted from not necessarily, oh, it's a nice, really shiny tool to use, but actually uh, the collaboration on that document was happening directly in the same room. And you used to be able to turn around and in, in Lloyd's on the floor and a trading floor, you could see it turning around, asking a question, typing it in. COVID does not allow that anymore. You can't turn around and ask a question. You now must have that nice shiny tool to do the collaboration inside because that's the only way you can communicate uh, and message to each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, It is. you know, as we said, the front end things, the customers have all been thought about already, but nobody seems to have thought about what's going on in the middle. And I think, as you said, Lloyd is one of the perfect examples of that. Nigel? I, I think to uh, almost to counter my own point previously about is it good enough? And to Anastasia's point, I'm just to argue it myself. Can you imagine living with me? It'd be a nightmare. Um, Sarah, you mentioned, you know, just doing the fancy front end or analog to digital. Actually, in some cases, that might be good enough because just having the analog piece converted to digital is a step forward. And to the point I think Tim made, just because you can doesn't even say you, you should always should. So actually, whilst we might be able to jump a few hurdles to get to the ultimate answer, if we're going to reimagine a process to the very end, but to take the people that have always done it in a certain way on that journey, you might have to go through baby steps to get there. So going from a manual submission on a 15-page Word document that was typed and handwritten to a typed in version of it 
as opposed to an API, which we all know is possible, might be a step too far for some people. So you might have to take people bit by bit by bit to get to that actual end state journey. So I think we can probably digitize some parts of that journey and it be seen as progress. Again, to, to turn on my other side of my face, what we shouldn't do is celebrate all those things as being the end game. I'm confusing everyone here, aren't I? Yeah, Nigel, the question was, which bits do you think are harder to do, like back end or front end? Um, and I suppose what you're suggesting there is that it kind of depends on what lens you, you put on it. Um, and actually, the question that you're asking is, you know, how hard something is to do depends on how much value you place on it, right? So... I think if I answer the question in, a, in an odd way, I'd just say the people part is the hardest part because I don't think the technology is hard. On, I'm sure you speak to any technology company. Technology is relatively straightforward. What COVID did for us broadly in the industry was it proved that we could take Lloyds of London as an example and move at home overnight and not drop a heartbeat. So it proved that people were able to adapt very, very quickly, which meant we didn't have to worry about a two or three year change program to go, we can never do that. Okay. Um, so talking about the people bit then, that the people bit are the difficult bit, are there some aspects when we talk about insurance specifically that are always going to need people involved? So whether that's part of the underwriting process, you know, do we, are we always going to need people involved at some parts of that? Are we always going to need people involved in claims handling? Are we always going to need people involved in customer service? Because there's, I, I feel like, particularly with insurance, it can be a very emotive subject. We've talked about this before. Like if something goes horribly wrong and you're just faced with kind of a blank screen on the on the customer end, that can be distressing and, and, and you know, not going to win you any loyalty. But where throughout the insurance process specifically do we think we still need sort of people involved, whether that's from kind of like actually the technology isn't there yet what, you know, so we need people doing checks and balances or whether it's because technology just can't do it yet or whether because customers are always going to prefer a human at some point. Well, I'll, I'll try and answer that as best I can, Sarah. Um, I, I think that there's always going to be a time when human interaction de dealing with emotive situations is required because at the end of the day, you know, like on this call here, we react to each other. We're looking right this remote and we're using a video conference application, but we're looking at how people are reacting and we're programmed to work in a way that is always more comfortable responding appropriately to the individual who's speaking. And no matter how good you get with AI or, or chatbots or, or whatever else, you can't replace that human interaction uh, at times. I think when you're dealing with sensitive information, you know, there, there are times that you have to be very aware of, are you introducing extra risk if people are working remotely and how do you manage that? And that's something we talk, talk with our customers about. And equally, when you're making judgment calls, which uh, you know at some point in the insurance sector you often are, Again, if you haven't got the human experience to teach artificial intelligence and how to behave and how to act with check and balance, I think it's difficult to ever imagine that you get to a, a situation where you're dealing entirely with systems that are working on taught algorithms and experience because you know what, what's teaching them? And, and at some point, you have to have that human element there to understand that. And equally, if you're negotiating a, a contract or a, a complex negotiation, Again, there's that value judgment that's down to the individual. And, and, and I think it's very tough to ever imagine a situation where that goes away entirely. Nor do I think as sentient beings that would particularly enjoy that experience if, if we were to be able to reach it. Yeah, no, I think that is another point as well. It's the, how comfortable is a customer with 
interacting that way. And I think that's kind of almost the, the front end, back end point is that actually, if you're looking at, you know, automating things on the back end and introducing digitalized processes on the back end, then the customer doesn't necessarily need to know that. And actually, it makes the humans on the back end happier because, as to Anastasia's point, they're using something cool, but also they're using something more efficient and they have no longer to go through reams and reams of paper, for goodness sake. So maybe kind of the human element remains on the front end and on the back end, you have greater focus on digitalization. Not to say that I think we need to get rid of people in the back end of the insurance industry. I think we're nowhere near that yet. I would say that's what we're seeing, Sarah, that back office automation to make it more effective to service the front end, but still having that personal interaction. That's certainly where we're seeing a lot of the of the digital transformation in, in the market specific to, to Highland. And I guess maybe Anastasia is seeing something similar based on her earlier comments, but you, you've absolutely summed up well you know what we're seeing, Sarah. It's nice. To, it's nice to be right sometimes. <laughs> if you take if you take both those points, though, so Tim, on your point about back end versus whatever else, I think if we were able to, it's not digital transformation; it's almost digitization. So if we were to take the monotonous tasks, copying forms to spreadsheets to underwriting applications, no one really enjoys doing. We don't want to pay an expensive underwriter or actuarial division to do things that we could automate quite quickly. So they don't really add any value. And actually, you by automating, you can remove errors. So I think on those sorts of elements, you can automate and digitize those quite easily. Sherry, you use the word customer quite a bit. And I think that's actually, that's actually really important as well, because in the Lloyd's market, where you are dealing with face-to-face, if it's a renewal and they're known to you already, it's a different conversation because you have the empathy, you have the relationship. If it's a net new customer, though, for an industry that's typically you know, described often as knives and forks in, in many cases where it's all done through entertainment or whatever else or through uh, engaging in different ways, then actually it's harder to build a brand new relationship in this sort of fashion where we don't know each other and we don't get the chance to see the whites of someone else's eyes or body language or, or whatever else it might be. So I think the word customer is also important because if it's new versus existing, it changes the, the dynamic and the, the relationship as well. I think for new business, what I heard from some of the, the clients in the London market early on was, hey, the renewals, whilst they're going to be difficult, at least they know us. But how do we go bid for new business? Imagine this was on, you know, one one twenty one, which would be a big renewal day. Imagine that compared to, you know, going out there and winning new contracts. So it's not impossible. I just think it's a little bit harder in some places. Yeah, Anastasia, did you want um, to make a point on that? Because You're raising really interesting uh points uh, from a perspective of digitization i'm a technologist at the end of the day that's what i do and to me it feels like automation will come and automation everywhere is not about replacing us or us being only the teachers of it it's about actually enabling or using the technology to enable us so think of it this calendar we use calendar every day that's technology that actually drives us to do things that a machine cannot do um, so that's an interesting area of topic. But uh, in terms of uh, new clients and being able to use technology to actually build business, I absolutely agree. And in COVID, it was really interesting to be able to actually engage with a um, market an audience uh, on a much wider scale, the borders got erased, the time zones got erased, the distance got erased because everybody was doing what we are doing and we're all learning how to do body language and how to communicate and express emotions using just this box that you know fits the picture of it. so it's a really interesting um experience too 
It's like a social experiment, isn't it? So we're going to come back and and pick up um, on that just after we take a quick break. InsureTech Insider listeners, we need you. If you listen to the show, whether this is your first episode or your 74th, or you dip in and out, we'd love it if you could take a few minutes to give us your feedback and suggestions to help shape the future of the show, both for InsureTech Insider, but also for our sister podcast, FinTech Insider. We want to know what you like, what you don't, and where we can improve, because we make this podcast for you, our listeners, and we want to make it even better. To help us out, please take a moment to visit bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. It shouldn't take more than five minutes to complete, but it would mean so much to us. That's bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. Thank you so much, and on with the show. Okay, so to pick up on the point we were at before, which is almost kind of a social experiment and the idea of sort of cultural, I suppose, cultural change that's had to happen, whether that's you know dealing with customers, dealing with each other, dealing with the whole industry. What kind of impact do we think Lloyd's of London specifically closing its doors had on the insurance industry's culture? And by which I mean kind of it's such a, a central part of the insurance market globally, but particularly here in the UK. That do, does the industry lose something if you take away that central hub? If you take away the fact that this is the place where everybody goes, do do we need to find a new central point, or do we no longer need it? So, I mean, if you look back at the history of Lloyd's, it dates back to the 17th century, and I'm sure this isn't the first time that there's been a, a fairly dramatic change in the way things have uh, are working. And I think you know that the question of whether you lose a, a central focal point, well, well, clearly for a period of time, uh, we did the world continued to, um, to to turn and they continued to, to do business remotely. I guess the question is how you recreate what was lost in a way that still helps you to get the business done and still recreates that feeling as effectively as possible. I, I don't think there'll ever be a time when entirely moving away from face-to-face communications at, at Lloyd's or indeed anywhere else is really the ultimate aim that we should be looking at. But, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about new normals and how, you know, how the world has changed. And yes, it has. But it did. When I started working, we used fax machines to communicate. I even used to send letters. So, you know, the, the world changes. And it's not about the new normal, which overnight happened. It's about the next normal. So as, you know, Lloyd's has adapted for hundreds of years, and successfully so, because we're still talking about it as such an important, you know, part of the, the insurance industry. I think that, you know, questioning and continuing to evolve is important without losing the kind of the core of what's the value that that institution will deliver to us and why. Is it about recreating though? So I, I, I don't know what the word is, Sarah. Maybe it's the beacon because it is a, and it's not just the building in Lime Street, it's the pubs next door, the hustle and bustle, the sandwich shops, the bumping into people in that square mile. I mean, I took the kids in last week into London it was empty around there last week and we walked around some of the insurance and I said to my wife you know I work in that building over there and that building over there and that's where this customer is and that and it was lovely because you just you bump into so many people as you go from place to place to place that you don't get that uh, people talked about a lot about the serendipity or the the watching the world go by I'm not sure we want to recreate that directly in a digital virtual world although the virtual rooms opened up in a super speedy time and whatever else to be able to continue the transactions i think what we need to get back to is the interactions rather than just the transactions that allow us to do business in a in a in a, in a completely different way and some of it will never go back right because it doesn't need to be proved it can be as efficient or more effective but the one thing london's been known for world over is its specialist knowledge if you want to write a complex risk 
there is no better place in the entire world than coming to the centre of London and finding your marine, your aviation, your cargo, your space, your underwriters that are the absolute pinnacle of expertise. And whilst you can do that remotely somewhere, and of course we still do that because we are a world-renowned business, nothing beats doing that you know, face-to-face sometimes. I think my, I completely agree with your point that sometimes nothing beats face to face. But what you could say about the way that Lloyds of London and many other um, organizations and, and, and industries operated is that it's actually quite exclusionary because it requires you to have to be able to get into London, to have the time to be able to stop for a chat, to be able to commit to going for dinner or drinks after work or taking time out at a lunch break. So if you are somebody who, um, for whatever reason, cannot do that. Whether I mean, there's the option, of course, if you know all this kind of remote working. Well, we can hire people in Helsinki, and it'll be brilliant because we can bring in that expertise. That is one thing. But the other thing it does is it gives people who perhaps didn't get a seat at the table previously because they. The classic example for this is working mothers who could only work three days a week, or who had to leave at certain times, or who couldn't attend social events. All of a sudden, they've got a seat at the table because they can be there. They can be in front of their laptop. Um, And at the same time, I find it quite amusing how many dads who are suddenly having to work from home with their kids are going, oh, my God, my wife does this all day. How does she do this? This is insane. Um, You know, and she's still got the washing on and she's doing dinner and she's working. And that kid over there is being homeschooled. Um, But my point, I think, about the idea of like moving forward and what Lloyds of London offered I think the point about having a central point where expertise can be shared is brilliant I think there were some negatives and this gives us an opportunity to speed up moving away from that um yes and and actually your question was did we lose something being the optimist actually I think the other other thing we should say is what did we actually gain and I think we gained so much I've heard from people that work for our firm you know in not in London in remote locations that they actually feel like they've leveled up and everyone is now set to an equal bar. And that does mean whether it's Helsinki or it's Cheshire or Leeds or or wherever it might be, everyone's at the same pace. There's no disadvantage from not being in the office. And I find that really encouraging in that actually your your aviation experience might be in Farnham because there's a you know original engineering and an air, an aircraft division down there and they can't get into London for all the reasons that you highlighted. So actually the things that we gained I want to make sure, I'd love to make sure that as an, as an industry, we don't throw all those things away. So I think actually one of the predictions we made very early on was the re-rise of the regions. So how do we get, and this is important to brokers again, brokers or local brokers in each regions, is there a, a WeWork style um, entity in local villages or whatever else it might be that allows you to, rather than commute into London or a big city, you commute to your local town work there rather than getting on a tube for three hours or two hours into London and getting back out again. But you work not in the house. I mean, I've got some friends that are sitting there going, I need to get out of the house, but I don't want to go into, into the city. Can I rent a desk locally? Yeah, Anastasia, what did you did you want to contribute on to, to any of those points? Because we, we sort of went through a few things there. But I suppose that to remind you of the original point was that, you know, if we take something like Lloyd's of London away in person, what do we lose? What do we gain? What are the opportunities? I actually echo everything that is being said. I appreciate um, and agree that it was nice to be able to be there on Live Street and be able to socialize and actually be able to really form meaningful friendships and relationships with people because you are naturally meeting them much easier and having a more deep dive conversations. But uh, for me, this was amazing to be able to do work remotely and to work in multiple regions and to speak to clients uh, 
continuously all across, regardless of where they are. And I had to, you know, and I did it from home. And it does uh, equalize everybody um, in front of everyone else. And I think it's a really huge benefit for a lot of people. So, yeah. Do I agree about co-working space? I'm actually sitting in a co-working space 10 minutes away from my house right now because I needed to get out of the house. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's really, you know, important to have that option because sitting home, you, yeah, I, I, I can speak for myself. I, I would go crazy. Um, but it's interesting just a bit of observation um our company we're small uh, we are um, in in london only 15 people so for us uh not seeing each other uh, and then actually getting back together a couple of weeks ago for a day in one of those co-working spaces you realize that although for the last five months i've been speaking to all of them and have been working with all of them you lose a little bit of that unity that makes you that company and it's an really interesting i didn't appreciate it until i actually got into that room and saw them all for the first time in five months to really feel it it's a very subtle thing but it's a really interesting um experience actually eye-opening yeah, and I think to, to Nada's point, you can combine that with the idea of regional hubs. So previously, everybody who lived outside of London had to go to London to attend socials or to to be for that big board meeting or to do the team Christmas party or whatever whatever it was that you were doing, whether it was after work drink or somebody's birthday. But we now have the opportunity to go, okay, well, we'll have one in London once a year. We'll also have one in Manchester and one in Cardiff and, you know, wherever else makes sense. So you'd probably, probably one in Norwich, given the insurance industry, um, and give people, you know, that no longer you feel about, well, I'm the put upon one because I don't live in London and everybody else can get the tube home. It's, it, it, you can encourage that sense of unity. Uh, yeah, Nigel, because if you give one last point on this and then because I want to move on to some of the more practical problems about working from home. Yeah, as I say, the, 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 and it's probably related, so it's a, it's a good segue. The one thing I don't think anyone has solved for, and there's lots of suggestions and ideas around, is how do we manage the hybrid? How do we manage the fact that Nigel doesn't want to go back into, the, into London, into the office, and Sarah does, or vice versa, and we then make sure that the person that therefore is now remote also has the same say in the room when they're in the room. And I've done a few of these, actually, these conversations and calls where there's some people in the physical office and there's some people on video. And it, it's hard. It's, it's different to what we've all been doing because we've either all been in the office or we've all been on video. And we're about to go into a mixed mode where we're going to have some folks in the office that can interact in the way we used to and some folks that choose to stay at home. And, and my experience in that so far has been it's difficult. Yes. My first no. experience, at least. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree that it is that. And then you have the thing where everybody's been brought up to the table and leveled up. Do they drop away again um, once people go back to the office? And, and I think what I've been seeing is that there's different companies have done different ways of doing this. So some circumstances, you've got the big C-suite going back in first, which is possibly, you know, and it with that exclusionary thing, because all the most important people are in the, the room and everybody else is left behind. But I've also seen sort of experiments fail where they randomly select a group of people who have to go back in for a week at a time. And that doesn't work either because you don't take into account people's individual needs and when my partner is uh, he can he can go in he can if he wants to go in every Wednesday but Wednesday is the only day and you have to sort of sign up in advance so it's that's a literal practicality is how do you manage it particularly when people can't hot desk or sit next to each other or 
you know, you've had to take half the chairs away. Um, so on, on that note, what are the more complex issues of working from home? Are there, you know, whether, whether that's, tech, you know, aside from the people side, what about technology? What about regulation? You know, we, we work in an industry or the insurance industry and the financial services industries are very highly regulated. You know, how difficult is it to start, even if you can automate some of those processes, can you do so in a compliant fashion because the regulator hasn't got there yet? So, know, Anastasia, do you want to start with that one? Because I know that's an area that, that you look at. Yes, uh, I actually, you know, the first thing immediately comes to mind with the COVID is uh, business continuity and disaster recovery. That was first uh, to get hit, right, obviously, by by the uh, the start of this uh, pandemic. Um, and for us, we saw quite a lot of that. It's, it's the idea of, all right, we now have all of the employees home. Do they have internet? Is it a stable internet? Do they have a desk? Do they have a, a chair that actually is not going to break their backs, right? Um, so those the basic necessities, do people actually have a, a place to work from uh, and be able to be productive and focused? But then what we also found, um, obviously, there is all this regulatory re- obligations uh, that uh, organizations must maintain. And those are written uh, in police, internal com- company policies, in procedures, in manuals that employees must follow. And then suddenly there's this search of um, exceptions and issues around maintaining that compliance. How do you articulate and adjust the ways of working quickly? And how do you actually train or communicate or enforce this with people that, that are not um, in the room with you, right? So all of those things um, we saw quite a lot. I, I think we all eventually learned a way that works for each individual company and, 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 and team, but it's an interesting, um, just just observation again and interesting topic. Yeah, there are so many different elements to it, aren't there? Sort of, you know, can you do it? Is it possible? You know, beyond, can is it possible? Okay. Is it legal <laughs> is the next question. Exactly. Uh, and is it sustainable? Can you actually yeah. continue like this? Yeah, if, if, if you can make, yes, it's possible and yes, it's legal, well, that involves one employee staying up till four every morning, manually putting things to a spreadsheet to record it or uploading audio files. Is that sustainable? Probably not. Um, Tim, what about you? Have you spotted any any other areas that, that people have struggled with or that are, you know might need further work? I think, again, it's making different parts of, of our business society think in different ways. I mean, at Highland, we're a software company and we're, we're pretty distributed and, and most of my time is spent working remotely um, uh, if I wasn't traveling, which certainly hasn't happened for the last um, seven months. I think it's the longest I've stayed in the UK since uh, 2011. For a period of time, I didn't go further than about eight kilometers from my house, which is the kind of the length of my my, my run before I got tired and turned around again. So I, I think, you know, I, I've seen how you can enforce sort of uh, data privacy and GDPR um, remotely because it's something that we that we have to do. What I'm seeing is that particularly insurance companies, and this is why I was pleasantly surprised to see the uptake on, on cloud solutions, is that, that that's becoming something which they're having to, you know, the insurance sector is having to accelerate its its thinking on. But it is also, you know, making people question, um, you know, people question the working method more. If you've got client data on a screen and you're working from home because you're taking a call center question or whatever else, and you've got client confidential information, who else is in your in your household? Who else is viewing that? 
Um, you know, I think one of the people, I agree with the comments earlier on about people working from home, that some people are used to it, but so many people realise it was so much more difficult when you do have to pick up a, a child who's upset and try and balance them against, uh, you know, a, a balance the, that work-life balance when you have no choice but to react. And so I think people are learning. I, the, the important thing is that that adaptability and that flexibility and, you know, agility is an overused term, but that, that as well is, you know, that we're, we're going to need to adapt so we're going to need to start thinking about these things because we don't know exactly what the future holds. And, and you know, another event like this may or may not happen. Let's hope it doesn't. But that that ability to think to think differently and be prepared and to be equipped for that, I think, is is really really important. Um, and I agree. I'll get on the legal side. The, the the level of obviously in the insurance sector in particular and financial services, the level of sort of compliance uh, around how data is stored and used is is incredibly stringent, and, and so it should be. But again, that's creating a whole different thought process for, for so many of the, of the customers that we interact with. Well, I think that's the most important thing. It's the thought process. So you can have flexibility of working. You can say X person only works X hours because they've got kids to look after or my kid's sick or take the afternoon off or whatever. You can have flexibility of working. But what you really need as well is flexibility of process. So the not only is that like the actual literal process has to be able to be done in three different ways to ensure business continuity, but you have to make sure that the people who are implement creating and implementing and enforcing those processes to also have flexibility of mindset and go, okay, well, if we can't do it that way, let's not just go, we're not doing it. Let's try and think, accept that they might have to think of a way around it. And I think for a lot of people, particularly in some of the larger organizations who've been there for a while, that's new to them to sort of have that kind of ability to sort of change on the spur of the moment I think okay well it hasn't worked how do we do it that comes back to Nigel's point it's about it's about thinking about the you know the the, the, the people aspect and, and what that really means and, and taking people on a digital or digitization transformation journey it, you know, because the people are going to have to implement it one way or another no matter which piece of technology they use so that step by step you know engaging with the the, the, the employees is incredibly important because it's the employees and the team are bought into it for all into it it won't it won't be successful so that people aspect it comes it comes back to utilizing technology and leveraging technology as opposed to just replacing people there's, there's a couple of angles to this as well just to expand out on um the regulation one's always interesting you know how do you deal with the data and, and that that's all easy and possible what one of the things that i've been pondering for a bit now is are we all just reacting so quickly to what we see right in front of our face for at least the next three to six months and if we jump forward five years, have we reverted back to an element of what we've always done for the last hundred years in terms of coming to a central place of work because that's where the people are? I haven't got the answer one way or the other. I just feel sometimes that we've all overreacted because we've all been forced into this situation. It still goes back to the fact that COVID broadly is an accelerant of things that were happening already, not necessarily a change agent. We haven't all of a sudden gone, let's turn right and stop doing what we're doing. We've done exactly the same with what we've always done, back to your point about recreating. We've just had to get there really quickly because there was no choice. Now we're there, do we turn left, right, or go back to where we were? And I think that's the important thing, isn't it? When you've seen some of the cuts that are being made across financial services, including insurance and the cuts are being made in areas like research and development, innovation, you know, uh, training and, and, and development for employees. That makes me go, no, 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 that's not going to help you. To, you know, think about turning left, turning right, or to use the, the, a banking example, 
banks are going gleefully, yes, we can shut all these branches you wanted to shut for ages and we'll say it's because of COVID. And I have a horrible feeling that nobody in those banks has thought, yeah, but what are you going to do in six months' time when you've got all these people who can't access your services? So um, just, you know, b- before before we wrap up, just wanted to ask kind of the group um, where you think, well, I suppose I can pick up on Nigel's point and the best way to frame it is possibly where do you think we're going to go next? You know, I think we've all expressed a bit of optimism about hopefully we're not going to revert. But where do you think, and I won't be mean and ask you to look into your crystal balls, I usually say in, you know, 18 months time, but I think that's incredibly unfair <laughs> since March. So kind of where, what do you think will happen next? You know, will we see people retrenching? Will we see people changing? And if they're changing, where where is that change going to come? I'll go first if you want to give Tim and Anastasia a chance to think about it, if you want. My my take on this is it will give people the opportunity to, to leapfrog what they've done. And there'll be two broad groups. Group one that says, oh, great, we can go back to what we've always done. And they'll be back to as efficient as they ever were, whether that was really good or really bad. But they'll just be an elastic band that goes straight back to where they were. Or the real winners will be the ones that are able to use this as a leapfrog moment or whatever the fancy word is to go, we've done that. We've proved our people can do it. We've proved we've got the technology in space in place. We've made the investment in remote technology. Now let's leverage the hell out of it. And they're the exciting ones where they can go, we're brave enough to give it a go. Yeah, I think we we should be in a place, hopefully, where we can, we can learn from what's happened. And I don't think it's a matter of saying, are we going to automate more or, or less and how do we, we drive that but it's about being being ready and again having that, that thought process and that flexibility to be able to try and make sure that we're, we're getting all of our businesses ready for what happens next even if we don't really know what may happen next and you know we the only way that you learn for the future is, uh, is maybe to look at the, the mistakes of the past sometimes and I do think that some organizations have tried to pivot too much I, we had a long conversation at, at Highland about office locations and, and what did that mean? And okay, we're all, we're all working from home relatively successfully and the business is still growing. That doesn't mean that just because we can, we, we always should. But what I'm trying to think about is, okay, well, what's what's best for our customers? What's best for our employees' well-being, And how do we take the best bits and make sure that we are ready to, to continue our, our journey? Because digital transformation that we're talking about today is always a journey. It's not a destination. Um, so I think having that flexibility of, of thought and, and learning from what we've seen and trying to be ready and also being considerate that sometimes change happens quickly and people can be, you know, that can make people feel differently as well. I'm, I'm hoping that's what we can we can take from, from this and, and, and continue the journey. I think the point about learning is really important. As somebody who a, a hist- was a history student back in the days of, you know, of, of university, I think you can learn so much if you just use to look at what's been done before and what you know what you can actually pause and learn from and what you can take forward and I think the finance industry hasn't necessarily been particularly brilliant at doing that historically and hopefully this might accelerate that kind of actually stop think what have you done what did you learn what what you know stop start continue very basic principle but for a lot of people in large financial organizations it's not it's not as easy as that um and Anastasia if we haven't stolen all your points um what would you what would you like to say about you know the future of uh, digitalization and digitization within the insurance industry what's next so i i think this um 
2020 uh, taught us uh, that we need to be uh, versatile, flexible. We effectively need to be masters of all tricks. And now going back, even discussion to go back to work, people already have been learning uh, this and understanding that this is going to be flexibility is what's going to take you ahead. I think organizations now, when they're looking at their employees, have to realize and will be realizing that they also have to be masters of objects. If employees want to use cloud to store data, that's the way to do it. If we want to do backups on the local service, that's the way to do it. But being able to offer everything um, and being flexible uh, and accommodate uh, specific uh, situations and react to the situation quickly. And what's even more interesting is we, in the last five months, have taught our children that that's the way to do it. And uh, now that they are uh, seeing that they had to learn remotely, uh, self-based on their own, and they could go back to school and might actually be returned back to home learning, they are learning to be flexible too. And that's the next generation that will go in back into a workforce and they will have expectations. It's not about learning from an experience. That's what they will be expecting from everybody around them. Brilliant. Well, that's a very positive note. So let's let's leave it there. So that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much to my guests and to Nigel. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you, Tim? Uh, well, firstly, Sarah, it was a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation today. So thanks to everyone who took part. Um, my Anybody who wants to contact me is welcome to do so on LinkedIn. So please reach out to me there. As you'd expect, um, there's a wealth of information at our website, www.highland.com. And I'd also like to mention that Highland's annual digital transformation event is taking place virtually um, this year on October the 5th to the 9th, Community Live. A uh, great opportunity for attendees to learn more about Highland and to develop strategies for some of the things we've been talking about today. So take a look at that and feel free to register. Brilliant. Sounds highly topical. Um, Anastasia, how about you? Uh, and I echo, it was a pleasure to be here today and to have this conversation with all of you. Um, so although remotely, so maybe we'll get to meet uh, face-to-face uh, one day. Uh, but in terms of contacting, uh, you can always reach us at cosmudge.com. And if you do, please subscribe to our newsletter uh, to get updates and news around uh, our organization. And otherwise, please reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. I look forward to meeting new people and to sharing experiences and having a conversation. And your name will be spelt in uh, our post so people can find you more easily and uh, you, people don't have to try and find you off the back of my horrific pronunciation. Uh, Nigel, how about you? As always, making myself get in trouble. Actually, you and me last week, but that's a different conversation. On Twitter or making pizzas is my latest hobby. So there we go. On Twitter at Nigel Walsh. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders or our 11FS LinkedIn page. That is 11 colon FS. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, which you can find on Spotify and other podcast providers. Please, please do not forget about that survey. It helps us make this podcast better for you, our listeners. In short, we'll be back very soon. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>